Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm sick and I'm Joe. <laughs> I like it. It's a little bluesy. I'm Brenna. <laughs> And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmik Ulu. And today's text, This One Summer by Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki, is set in the fictional town of Owego, which is located in the not-fictional popular cottaging region called Muskoka Lakes, which mm. is the traditional lands of the Patoon, Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, Mississauga, and Wendake peoples. Joe, have you ever been to Muskoka? I feel like I've driven through it, but obviously I'm very familiar with the concept of cottage country. <laughs> yes, because you live in Toronto, and the only thing people from Toronto like to do and talk about is going to cottages. It's true. We like to escape the city. It's true. It's very um, sort of uh, Victorian Britain in, mm. in its sensibility. <laughs> and entitlement, yes. Yeah, Dev's family used to have a cottage on Georgian Bay. I only ever went mm. up once before they sold it. Um, but it was like wild to me because Deb's mom has all these memories of just like going up and spending the entire summer there. Mm -hmm. And it's so not a lifestyle that, well, it's not a lifestyle that I think our generation has access to at all, but it's kind of fascinating. It's just a very different way of summering. And we see uh, sort of the, the lower middle class version of it in this book or the middle middle class version of it in this book where you rent a cottage for a week and go and check it out. And I, mm -hmm. I do have memories of my parents like renting a cottage in PEI and driving out there with my brother while he complained about the tiny hot car and the dog drooling on him. You know, those right. kinds of memories I have. <laughs> but I'm not, <laughs> I don't have a long cottaging history myself. Yeah. So my grandparents had a cottage on a private lake that my sister and I would go and spend the summers at for, I want to say probably a decade when I Ooh, was wow. maybe 10, Ooh. under, under 10. And yeah, the memories that I have are absolutely great. It's a very relaxing lifestyle. It makes you feel reconnected to nature and the land. But also, I don't know, like it, it can be boring. You can get up to things. It depends on who's there. There's a lot of petty squabbles with other people who own cottages because <laughs> everybody knows each other. And I felt very nostalgic for that when I was reading this one summer. And I feel like the Cousins Tamaki have done a really good job of capturing that nostalgic vibe. I was always jealous for the idea of a summer friend, you know, because mm -hmm. I read a lot of books set in co cottage country as a kid. And I always remember right. thinking, like, how cool would it be to get to, like, reinvent yourself every summer for this very specific audience of people who you only mm -hmm. see in summer context? You know, as a kid who, like, didn't fit in super well at school, that idea always appealed to me. And I... I, I kind of love seeing this summer friendship on the page here, which is starting to sort of tease mm -hmm. apart, right? They're getting to the point where the year and a half age gap between them is is a little more than they can sustain. And I don't know, there's something about that idea of like a, a cottage friend or a camp friend I was always pretty jealous of. I just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. And of course, Brenna, we haven't addressed the fact that this is our second entry into banned books. And I honestly read this and wanted <laughs> to just go on some kind of tweet storm because there is 
so nothing <laughs> to this book that anyone should find a problem with and then i had to go and find out why it was banned and i got even more annoyed and so why don't you tell us what this book is about and why it has been targeted yeah okay so we'll start with the plot um this one summer is a book about two girls rose and windy rose is really the protagonist and windy mm-hmm. is her summer friend And they've been spending time up at this cottage since Rose was five. So they've known each other for, you know, their whole sort of sentient period. Mm -hmm. Um, Rose, as I said, is a year and a half older than Wendy. And this is the summer where Rose is starting to be really interested in boys. Yep. And really interested in sort of the dynamics between the older kids in this cottaging area. And she's really curious about you know, sex and what those kids are getting up to and whether she will ever be able to do those kinds of things. And Wendy's just like not really there yet. No. Wendy's still like, <laughs> boobs are hilarious. Like, let's let's make fun of these teenagers because they're so goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is where sort of some fracturing begins to happen in their relationship. Yeah, we should note that they're preteens. So Mm -hmm. the idea of teenagers who are having sex and partying and working these part-time jobs in this not great summer cottaging town is very interesting to Rose because she's she's too young to really understand how boring and basic it actually is. So it (laughs) seems very exciting. And then Wendy is too young to even care about any of it. And there's all this sort of other parental dynamics stuff going on, because of course there is. Rose's parents are struggling a bit. They spend some Mm -hmm. time apart during this period of the summer because, oh, Joe, guess who forgot about the miscarriage storyline when she assigned this one summer for book club? Yeah, you've done a great job of picking books that just keep bringing (laughs) things up, Brenna. (laughs) I know. I was funny because I was so... I have to tell you the story of reading this book, so... I had a meeting get canceled yesterday and it was mm-hmm. like a meeting right after lunch. So suddenly I had like this sort of big chunk of time when normally I would eat at my desk. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to have a bath. Like I'm going to have a bath and I'm going to read this one summer. And so oh, I'm like, no. <laughs> so I get to the part where she has the miscarriage in the water and I was like, mm-hmm. oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, my productivity really slipped for the rest of the day yesterday. But so yeah, that's, yeah. that's going on in the background for Rose. And what I think is super fascinating, especially as someone who was once a young girl. Really? <laughs> Mariko and Jillian Tamaki are really interested in internalized misogyny. Yeah. Rose is mad at... Jenny. Yeah, she's really mad at Jenny. So Jenny is maybe pregnant Mm -hmm. and then probably pregnant but we never get any sort of follow-up on jenny's story so we only know as much as rose knows and rose is like really mad at jenny for putting dunk who's like everybody else in the book can tell is like this complete loser Loser. (laughs) but rose is really into him he works in the only store in town Mm -hmm. and so she she blames Jenny for putting Dunk in this position. And likewise, at home, she's so angry. Her mother is so depressed, frankly. Her mother is mm-hmm. experiencing a depression that nobody oh, seems sure. to address. Yeah. Um, and all Rose can see is that her mom is getting in the way of her and her dad having fun. And her mom yeah. is the reason her dad goes away. And her mom doesn't even try to have fun. And Rose has just all of this, like, just social, just 
dislike of women and it just drips out of her. It's everywhere. <laughs> and my favorite thing about Wendy, who is Wendy's being raised by a single, well, I don't know. Is her mom a single mom? They talk about her dad, eh? Uh, they talk about her dad but you get the impression he's not really in the picture very much yeah and she's adopted and her mom runs like this vegan food store so wendy Mm -hmm. spends a lot of time with like other adopted kids who are adopted by lesbian families like primarily that's like wendy's crew Mm -hmm. and you can see this transition for wendy from going along with whatever rose says and sort of absorbing that same kind of casual Mm -hmm. misogyny to really standing up and being like actually like i don't know why you're calling jenny a slut all the time like stop Mm -hmm. doing it you know and i just it's a really interesting dynamic because i think most young girls go through either one or the other of those perspectives or both right and so it's neat to see it on the page anyway all this to say there's all of this background going on but the story is really about kind of a coming of age story for Rose Mm -hmm. figuring out who she wants to be in the world going from sort of hating Jenny to feeling empathy towards her as a figure because the big sort of conflict moment in the text is that Jenny drinks too much and almost drowns and it's Rose's mother who finally gets back in the water after having this huge mental block about going into the water for the whole summer and rescues Jenny Mm mm-hmm brings her back to safety and so it changes rose's perception both of jenny and what jenny's been through and also of her mom and what her mom is capable of and that's basically it like it's a really quiet little book it is (laughs) it is and it's interesting right because i i didn't exactly know what to expect of this i read the blurb so i had an idea that it was yeah about this friendship at a summer cottage and it seemed like a slice of life and it really wasn't until i finished it and i started to think about it and we received two responses from listeners uh one from arthur and one from victoria and Arthur's is a little bit more brief, and they mentioned that the book didn't really work for them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that this was interesting first, because typically for book club, we get positive responses. We get Mm -hmm. people who write in because they enjoyed it, or they have minor critiques or something. And for Arthur, this was a text that just didn't offer enough. And I thought that that was really interesting and really valid. And like, I Mm want to encourage folks to reach out if things don't work for them as well, because art is a medium that's very subjective and we're not suggesting that everything is going to work for everybody so i did think that was fascinating and then it made me go back and think okay well i did enjoy this and i'm a man because i wondered if maybe the story was too specifically focused on young women's experiences Mm -hmm. and it was just harder to relate and i think for me the thing that i ended up taking away from arthur's email but then also the text itself is just it's the vibe, right? Like, and I'm not going to put Arthur down because they are actually very generous about saying the narrative doesn't work for them, but the art really does. And I do Mm -hmm. think that that's one of the areas that this book really shines is the visual storytelling is just so rich, which is incredible because it's blue and white. There's no other color. I was thinking about this yesterday and I think my actual favorite two-page spread in all of comics Mm -hmm. is that page you open up to in this book where Wendy is dancing around the table. Oh yeah. 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 There's so much like movement and joy. And there's this contrast between the two characters because Wendy is really letting herself like feel and embody joy Mm -hmm. in this 
in this sort of round, soft body that she loves. And Rose is holding her joy in, in this thin, angular body that she doesn't love. And it's mm-hmm. like, there's just something exquisitely gorgeous about that page. And the way Tamaki, sorry, otherwise I should be specific, the way Jillian Tamaki um, explores movement, like, I mm-hmm. just think there's something captivating about that art style. Yeah, because so much of this book is actually captured in big gulfs of distance between people. It's either people are compressed into tiny cars, tiny cottages, or they're spread out on open beaches, open water. So it's an interesting push and pull. I'm making a wavy motion with my hand that you can't see. And... I love the fluidity, like water is such an important motif in this book. And I think that also plays into the color scheme that the cousins have adopted for it. But yeah, it's really evocative in a way that I didn't think you could do all that successfully with monochromatic. Like I'm used to seeing black and white, but I'm thinking of Sin City or Batman comics where it's all about capturing different shades of night and darkness and depravity whereas this is somehow feminine and uh, watery and I don't know like it's just so evocative it is it it really is there's something about the maybe it's just the simplicity of monochrome you aren't distracted by Mm-hmm. other colors but at the same time the sort of challenge of it not being a black and white monochrome there's something really yes. interesting going on there and it does make me think of sort of the light in the evenings before the sun fully sets in the summer mm-hmm. you know those mm-hmm. long evenings that stretch out forever and that kind of like gorgeous blue light that they take it it sort of for me it evokes that that time right right So I guess we should talk about why the book was banned. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Walk us through this. (laughs) Because here's something that's very interesting. It literally was removed from several school libraries. Like this one goes beyond being challenged. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, it was the number one most challenged and banned book. Come Uh, on. And in 2018, it was the seventh most challenged and banned book. And why? Well, Honestly, I think because it got popular. I think that was the (laughs) most Mm. terrible thing to happen to this one summer. So this one summer won the Caldecott Medal in 2014. The Caldecott Medal is one we've talked about before on the show. It's an award that goes to the best children's book of the year. And we've talked on the show about both The Prince and The Caldecott. And here's the issue, I think. Mm -hmm. The Caldecott tends to be for younger readers. The Prince tends to be for older readers. Yes, In reality, their criteria overlap quite a bit in terms of age. Like, I think the Caldecott is actually for books up to age 14. 14. Yeah. Which would totally be appropriate for this book, right? 100%. Yeah. It's up up near the top or at the bottom of the prints, right? Yeah. And so it wins the Caldecott. It gets a whole bunch of publicity. It ends up in a lot of young people's hands. And suddenly Mm. folks are like huh, this is actually too mature for the eight-year-old I bought it for. Maybe you should have read the book first, just Mm. saying. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so here's what's weird, though, to me, Joe. The reasons it made it to the list in 2016 were drug use and profanity. Okay, there's Um, some. Yeah. Being sexually explicit, which it's not. Nice try. Mm -mm. There is, like, some sidelong conversation about sex from the perspective of teenagers talking about it but there's Mm -hmm. no 
explicit. Come on. At all. There's nothing explicit. And then number three, and this one blows my mind, LGBTQ plus characters. Yeah. Which first of all, the presence of queer people is not a reason to ban a book. That's ridiculous Mm -hmm. and disgusting. But second of all, who is the queer character in the book? Yeah, so here's the thing. We have Wendy talking about her mom's lesbian friends and clients. And I think you could make the argument that Wendy herself is slightly queer-coded. Mm-hmm. But that is not explicit. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, like, there's a big reach going on here. And as someone who frequently makes big reaches... <laughs> he knows when he sees them, folks. <laughs> e- even I was like, wait, what are we talking about here? And of course, there's no level of specificity when you look at the challenges or the bans, right? It's just, yep. oh, and LGBTQ characters. Okay, yeah. well, cite your freaking source. It's wild to me. It, so it got removed from a K-12 library in Minnesota. It was restored to that library, but actually only with the parameters that kids had to have their parents' permission. Oh, gosh, no. And that. they had to be in grade 10 or higher to have access 10? to this book. Yeah. Come on. Right? If you've read this book, you'll know that grade 10 is like almost too mm-hmm. old for this book by which yeah. i mean this is a book for like young kids who have the kinds of questions that rose has and it's mm-hmm. a book for people with nostalgia but in between i'm not sure it really works that well yeah like this feels as though it's a comic version of judy bloom and yes. judy bloom to me is middle school like upper middle school sure but it's taking a candid not adult but not talking down or placating tone, right? Like, but this is very much a book for the people who match the character's age. Mm-hmm. It went on to be banned in Seminole County, Florida. First of all, like, it became the subject of an absolute media panic, which oh, is gosh. wild to me. Like, all these people in Seminole County, Florida, talking about this little Canadian graphic novel. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, It got banned from all county elementary schools and elementary school libraries. It was also banned from all high schools. But after a challenge to that, it was restored to the high schools, but not to the elementary schools. So, yeah, like this book has whipped up a panic. And I think it's a really good example of there's a glib reaction when books get banned, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes when books get banned, if it's a popular book or a famous book, we get a backlash where a lot of people buy the book, right? As, right. A, as a show of support for the author. And there's mm-hmm. often this, frankly, fairly low quality argument that like, well, banning books is good because look at all the people buying it. Right. This to me is an example of when popularity in the form of the reception of an award like the Caldecott can have a real massive backlash. Like, this is about people not taking responsibility for the books that they purchase for their mm-hmm. kids. And instead, trying to outsource, like, appropriateness to an organization. Like, the Caldecott Medal has gone to loads of books with much more graphic content than this. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe look at the book <laughs> before you buy it. Like, I'm just fascinated by this idea. The book itself is recommended for audiences age 12 and up. That's what First Second recommends. Ages right. 12 and up. This is perfectly appropriate for ages 12 and up. I can 100%. see that maybe you wouldn't want your 8-year-old repeating the word penis out of the book maybe mm-hmm. i mean i i don't care My i mean it's an anatomically correct term yeah. sure <laughs> exactly um but 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm so floored by this one. I'm really floored by this one because it just seems like if this poor book had never won the Caldecott, none of this would have happened. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, I'm on. I'm both sidesing this argument because <laughs> I do 100% agree that this book was unfairly targeted, probably by hypocrites who didn't bother to read it, and it doesn't deserve that. It doesn't deserve that ire. It's a great book, and it should be in the hands of 12 to 14 year olds. At the same time, I hate this idea that we have to worry about what happens if a book wins a major award because all of a sudden that means it comes under public scrutiny, the spotlight, and so on. Like, you know, the the Tamaki cousins should have been able to revel in the fact that they were the first comic to ever win this award and be Mm -hmm. satisfied with that. And instead they had to contend with a public flaming it's interesting because this isn't actually the first awards controversy the Tamaki cousins came up against. Hmm. So their first book was a book called Skim. Did you ever read that, Joe? I have not, but I very much gathered that it's in the same vein and that people really like it. It's beautiful. It's very uh, similar in sort of just vibes. Like it's very similar okay. in tone and it's an equally sort of, I guess, small story. It's also about friendship, but it's much more about body image and like the self and it's a lot more explicitly queer i would say okay when that book came out it was nominated for a governor general's literary award which is our one of our biggest literary awards here in canada mm-hmm. but it was only nominated for mariko tamaki's writing so it was treated right. like an illustrated book as opposed to like a comic mm. book um and so you know typically when we talk about illustrated books we think of the author and artist as working separately because usually they do like right. usually an author writes a book and the publisher actually finds the artist who then makes the art for the illustrated book like it's a much different process than mm-hmm. creating a comic which is a much more integrated process mm-hmm. so it was nominated for this award and it was a big deal because it seemed to really misunderstand what comics were doing. And it became clear that the Governor General's Awards just like didn't know what to do with comics. And a bunch of very famous comics artists wrote in defense of Jillian Tamaki's art and that she should be equally um, honored against Mariko. So then when this one summer was nominated, that time Mariko was nominated for the writing and Jillian was nominated for the art, but they were still nominated in separate categories because the Governor General's Awards has still not figured out how to deal with comics. So it's interesting that this is the kind of book that really lets us see maybe the limitations of these award structures, either because Mm -hmm. they're structured around very strict age categories that are then misunderstood by by the audience, by the public, or because there's these strict definitions around who does what and whose role is what and likewise doesn't Hmm. really fit for more complicated well for anything that's not like a traditional novel or a traditional picture book anyway right it's just interesting this book has like a very quiet plot a very sweet ethos and it's brought nothing but controversy everywhere it has gone i find it fascinating Mm mm-hmm Yeah, and it's so confusing, right? Because so the other email we got, as I mentioned, was from Victoria. Mm -hmm. And they talk at length about how deeply they connected with this book on a very personal level, like, right down to, oh, I remember Summer Candy, and Mm -hmm. how you could only Mm -hmm. seem to get it at that place or that time or something like that. I think that's the conversations we should be having about this text. 
One thing I really loved about Victoria's email is that for her, I think the most significant piece in what was happening in the book was the relationship between Rose and her mother. Mm. Rose and her mother have a very fractious relationship, which is often really typical for for girls at this yeah. time in life, right? Mm-hmm. And Victoria reflects that they were struggling in very similar ways to Rose and and maybe more. I won't, I, I feel weird reading because it's very personal what Victoria sent, although I'm really grateful to have had that shared. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that is one of the real strengths of the book is that it's difficult when you are that age to realize that you actually have the capacity to hurt your parents, right? Yeah. Like, mm. And as adult readers, we don't just see how Rose is hurting her mom with some of the things that she says, but I think we also maybe relive some of those moments in our own lives in ways that are uncomfortable. At least I sure did. And and it sounded from Victoria's email like they did too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the really powerful things about how quiet the book is, because not that the experiences are universal per se, but that we all have these kinds of like quiet regrets about things we've said to our parents or, you know, ways we've reacted to people we love, even if it's not a sort of a parent relationship. And I think the book evokes that really carefully and really beautifully. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you say, it's a shame to have that buried by controversy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can absolutely understand why some people might struggle to connect with this if you Mm -hmm. feel like there just isn't quite enough there. This is a very in-your-feelings kind of text. Oh, yeah. Maybe one of the things that we can do is talk a little bit more about some of the things that we really liked about Mm -hmm. it. Because I Mm -hmm. have to say, I got an unexpected delight out of the sequences where the girls rent horror movies. I knew you'd love that part. I was like, oh, Joe's gonna love these parts. (laughs) Which just kind of came out of nowhere, right? But, you know, especially to people who watch horror films, this is very much a quintessential kind of coming of age piece where you watch inappropriate movies for your age and it scares the pants off of you. And for a lot of folks, that's where a lifelong love of horror comes from. And the idea that these two girls are basically running around unsupervised most of the time (laughs) and able to get into not trouble per se but get up to their own devices and have these kinds of experiences because they're not under the scrutiny of their parents or adults right and i think that that's another kind of quintessential coming of age piece is discovering who you are outside of the prying eyes of your parents or adults it's such a good dynamic too right because Neither one of them is like, ooh, horror movies, right? Mm -hmm. Rose wants to be seen as more adult than she is. So that's why she reads the first horror movie. And Wendy wants to keep up with her. And like, Mm -hmm. there's a really lovely moment where they kind of come to a a resolution about a lot of things that have happened in the summer. And and Wendy's like, I don't, I don't want to watch these movies anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I keep screaming in my sleep. And it was, I was like, oh, yeah, you're 18 <laughs> months younger than Rose. Like, yeah. if these are inappropriate for Rose to be watching, they're way inappropriate they're for Wendy to be watching. Yeah. yeah. And yet I could totally see Wendy going on to becoming a, a horror, totally. either a horror movie fan or someone who even works in them because she's got that kind of exuberant spirit. <laughs> She really does. And I do think Wendy is my favorite character in the book. She's so alive. And also, even though she's the younger of the two girls, she knows herself so much better than Rose does. Mm -hmm. And you almost want, you want to be like, Rose, you could learn something 
from Wendy. Right? Like, yes. take a page out of her book because you, she really could. Rose is... She's such a sad sack in a lot of ways. And she's so in her head, right? Yeah. Like, she's so concerned. It's that moment in life when the only thing that matters is what other people think of you, right? Like, yes, yeah. And Wendy will probably never have that moment, right? She's She's the kind of person who is so assured so self-assured and so confident in in herself Mm -hmm. and i also i have to say visually like i really appreciated that wendy is say it well i don't i don't know that i want to claim her as fat because i don't think that's accurate so Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of how i want to say it well she has she has that kind of childhood i almost want to say like chubbiness but yeah she does not in a bad way it's like it's it's a stage that a lot of preteens like basically from toddler to preteen a lot of children will carry weight in not weird ways because it happens to so many of us but yeah they they've just got a little bit of of extra on them and it's perfectly natural like it's it's what i almost expect to see in kids and it's really refreshing, especially when you see the contrast between her and Rose. And Rose is stick thin, and you can tell she's going to grow up and be like a very pretty kind of average girl. But Wendy, I think for a lot of folks, will reflect what they look like. Yeah, and there's something so sort of loving and joyful about how she inhabits her body on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I gave the example of the dancing scene, but there's lots of those scenes, right? Like, yes, part of the ongoing gag is that Wendy's mom is like this vegan health food store owning, like mm-hmm. everything is vegan and healthy. And when Wendy comes to the cottage, <laughs> Wendy eats sugar nonstop the for the entire time, right? And so Wendy is always like vibrating. And so she's so present in her body in this ongoing sugar rush. There's one mm-hmm. point where someone's like, or Rose says to Wendy, like, you never stop moving. And Wendy's like, oh, yeah, I've had a lot of sugar. Mm-hmm. It's like, so, you know, she's just so joyful and embodied in a way that Rose, who is so concerned, right, when she walks home wet and the boys laugh at her. Yeah. Like, Wendy wouldn't care, but for Rose, you see her, like, fold in on herself and, like, hold herself small. And I just, there's something so refreshing about having Wendy as a contrast, because so many of the stories we read about young girls are about the experience of Rose. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice to see the experience of Wendy alongside that, you know? Well, it's such a good contrast for even showing, you know, because they do talk about the age disparity or the age gap between the two of them a lot and it really helps to reinforce how big just a year and Mm -hmm. a half can be like we do a lot of growth in good and bad ways in just a Mm -hmm. year and a bit yeah it's so true um what were some of your favorite parts in the book joe so I was actually wondering if we can have a discussion because we Ooh. don't often get to talk about it because it's not present. But there is a moment where in this book, they go to an indigenous recreation oh, wow. township. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the historic heritage Huron village, Brenna. So I'm pretty sure this is a representation of a place that's real called the Hur- Huronia Museum. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find so interesting is that the girls are, they've obviously been going there their whole lives, right? right. Like every summer. It's the museum close to your cottage. You're probably going there a lot. Every time mm-hmm. your parents are like, oh God, we got to do something. Right. <laughs> Let's go do that, right? Um, but the girls are, for the first time, 
starting to ask questions like, is everybody who works here white? Mm-hmm. Like, it's supposed to be a recreation of a Huron-Wendat village that would have existed, like, quote-unquote, pre-contact, right? Like, that's right. The, the purpose of this site that they're at. And everybody who works there is white, except for one guy and who's, Asian. Who's, who's Asian, right? Mm-hmm. And and Rose is like, is that guy Huron? And she's like, <laughs> nope. And it's really interesting because none of the adults seem to ask any of those questions, right? right? But the two girls are starting to notice the kind of uncanniness of this experience. And I really, I really appreciated this inclusion. This is a really common, like, there mm-hmm. are a lot of these sites still operational. Huronia oh, sure. is still operational in Canada. They're really common. And I think that particularly... Up until probably the last 10 years, they have been predominantly and sometimes exclusively staffed by settlers. Mm-hmm. And that contrast between the kids being like, this is kind of weird and we don't actually want to be here anymore. Mm-hmm. And the parents being like, oh, let's go make another candlestick. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, there's no explicit comment. And yet that contrast is a pretty explicit comment in and of itself, you know? Mm-hmm. So when I was doing some research on this, I came across uh, suggested questions and study guides that you could use if you were teaching this in a classroom and that kind of thing. One of the pieces that I found that I was confused by suggested that Jenny, who works at this historic village, is herself Indigenous. And this became an issue with the monochromatic shading because I couldn't actually tell if she was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And I didn't read her that way because of the kids' comments about how there were no Indigenous people or even non-white people working there except for the one guy. But it prompted me to go, hmm, did I miss something? But also, how much does this text change if Jenny is an indigenous character? Because her whole arc is that she is maybe, aka likely, pregnant by this white sketchy dude who runs Mm -hmm. the convenience store who doesn't want a thing to do with her after he has impregnated her. And basically accuses her of lying about Mm -hmm. her pregnancy, right? Yes. That's interesting, Joe. I, I I was wondering, you know, I was reading... It yesterday, and I've read this book a lot. I've taught it, and I've never considered that before. But for some reason, yesterday it struck me that she's coded at least, uh, mm-hmm. her, she's darker than yes. the rest of the characters. And I think I've always just read that as kind of her outsiderness mm. with both communities. Like she's an outsider, obviously, to the girls who don't know her, but she's right. also kind of an outsider with her friends now that she's pregnant. And I've always just kind of read it that way because she's not coded in that sort of darker tone mm-hmm. earlier in the text when she's sitting oh, on the see. car and talking with the other kids so mm-hmm. yeah i don't know it does change it does change a lot if that's the case i'm just not persuaded that it is i don't think yeah i i couldn't get a sense of where that conclusion was being drawn from but it did it made me do that good old step back and say oh did you default assume that all of these characters are mm. white and why did you do that and i thought ah okay even if it turns out not to be true, it was a good moment of like, okay, you've done it again, and why do you do this? And it's interesting to assume they're all default white characters when the creators themselves are Japanese Canadian, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's interesting, because I don't think that racial coding is explicit for any of the characters particularly. Like, there is a certain amount of abstraction in, in Tamaki's style generally. It's interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Aw, now I'm thinking about it, Joe. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, maybe this is one of those questions or thoughts that we kick back to listeners. So if you did read it or if you end up reading it as a result of this conversation, let us know your thoughts. Can I share one quote from Victoria's letter before we go? Absolutely. Okay, I really like this as kind of a summing up. This is what I'm doing the last few episodes. I'm like finding a good quote from one of our listeners to sum up. The <laughs> yes, I, I get it. You're plagiarizing from our listeners uh, to make yourself sound good. <laughs> um, I get it. I I'm get crediting. It. I'm accrediting. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria says, This graphic novel is not only amazing at capturing that period of adolescence where you're transitioning to adulthood while still cherishing what is left of your youth, but it's also an important text about what it means to break out of your own bubble and give consideration to other people, especially during times Mm. of hardship and stress. I love that because... It doesn't resonate at all for the current uh, climate that we're living in either. <laughs> God. Um, to me, it's the it's why Rose isn't an insufferable character, right? Mm. Is because she does go through this growth. She is often kind of unlikable, particularly, yeah. you know, from a mom perspective. She's a little <laughs> bit unlikable at times. Yeah, she can be a bit of a brat, but not in an insufferable way. You're right. No, and what redeems her really is that this is that moment where you you realize that other people have feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And that adults are human and that people don't always make the best choices, but they're probably trying. Right. And um and I think that's why the ending is bittersweet. Like it's there's something really quite lovely about Rose realizing that she should wish the best for Jenny. But it's also, that is a moment of leaving the sort of solipsism of childhood, which is also kind of attractive, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to take that quote from Victoria, because I think that does a really good job of encapsulating what worked so well about the book for me, for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay. So Joe, Mm -hmm. we should talk about where we're going next with Book Club. Yes, we should. We've been teasing for the last little while that we're going to be reading The Pig Man by Paul Zendel. So that's your next book club. But then, Brenna, where are we going after that in case people need to get an early order in? We are going to be reading George by Alex Gino. So we're taking a step sort of closer to the middle grade. But this is a really important book when it comes to really simple and basic trans representation. And it's a book that has been utterly devastated by book bannings across the U.S. in particular. And so it seemed like a timely moment to bring this one forward for our our next pick after the pig ban. Mm -hmm. So folks, if you're looking for dates by which to respond, if you're reading these books along with us, they are in the show notes as always. And I've started to include them in every episode so that if you ever need to find it quickly, just hit those show notes and you can see the dates. Oh, thanks, Joe. Yeah. So if you are reading uh, The Pig Man or you're reading George and you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at HKHSPod on the Twitters or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B Stone My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And let me just say that we love your long-form responses. They're always a delight, and they always help us read the books differently. So keep mm-hmm. those coming. And you can send those to hkhspod at gmail.com. Yes. And folks, I feel like you may have your fingers hovering over keyboards as we head into next week. We're going to be reading something very different, Brenna. 
We're going to go into YA thriller territory. So we're going to read Nerve by Gene Ryan and watch the film Accompaniment, which stars Emma Roberts and Dave Franco. The book is something. Hot garbage. And, but the film is fun. We promise yes. the film is fun. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Folks, if you like the venti episodes, you're going to get at least 50% vent in next week's episode. <laughs> Uh, oh, thanks for reading this one with me, Joe. I've always really loved this comic. Hmm. Yeah, no, it was delightful. Not at all on my radar. So I was happy to have a chance to check it out. And until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. They were, hang on. Are you mm-hmm. kidding? Get out. Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. <clears throat> Cat is bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really felt reconnected to that by Aww. re... Eh. And I felt really reminiscent. No. What am I trying to say? Across the U.S. in particular. And so it seemed... It seemed... Oh, my God. <laughs>